Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is from Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Our God is sovereign. He does what he will. He does whatever he wants to. And he turns king's hearts and rivers wherever he wishes. And we must come to grips with this truth. In God's hands are the our king's hearts and rivers of water. God ordains the occurrences of life, both environmental and societal. And this means that there are no accidents. Nothing happens as a result of pure chance. But everything is done, or everything comes to pass, according to our God's divine will. And this is a fact and a simple truth. And of course, we can go two ways with this truth. We can rebel against him, or we can embrace him. And this is the great divide in the world. If we reject him, there is nowhere for us to go to hide from him. Because he is God, and he is sovereign, we will see him and his condemnation of our sin in everything. Every good thing will cause us to be bitter, because of our misery, and every evil thing will be an intolerable burden. We will become paranoid and insane, and in the end, our sin will drive us to eternal death. However, if we embrace him, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Paul put it like this. First he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And a little bit later he says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus is the key to this grace. Jesus makes the difference. He it is who suffered and died, who removed the great divide between our God and us. He paid for our sin. He is the one who makes us makes all things new again. Jesus is the reason that we can take heart that our God is good and gracious and merciful and kind. Jesus has united God to mankind in his person. Wisdom understands these two things. One, we must recognize God's sovereign authority. And two, we must submit ourselves to his divine will. The glorious promise of the gospel is that his will is grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. 
This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel. Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. You may have noticed our, our candle over here. It is also the beginning of the Christian calendar year. And the Christian calendar is driven by story. God tells us a story in the calendar. In Advent, we look forward to the coming of Jesus. At Christmas, we celebrate his incarnation. At Epiphany, we rejoice in our Lord's manifestation to the Gentiles. During Lent and Passion Week, we remember our Lord's suffering on our behalf. And at Easter and Ascension, we celebrate our Lord's victory over death and His coronation over the world. And the rest of the church here, at Pentecost and during Trinity season, we learn of God's plan for Christ's kingdom and how he works in and through the Holy Spirit and his body, the church, to accomplish Jesus' rule in every corner of the globe. In every aspect of this, we see God's love, his grace, his mercy, and his holiness. This story is the story. It's the great story, the story that is what it is all about. The history of the world and God's purposes in it are powerfully related in the Christian calendar. Every year we're reminded of Jesus, his life, of God and his plan, and of our purpose and our place in his world. And God tells this story on purpose. If you think about it, all of our experience, all of our experience has to do with this great purpose of God's. Everything that exists points to it. Everything we know, we know because God has revealed it to us. And the subject of this, of this story, the subject matter is always the same. God is revealing himself. What is life about? It's learning who God is. What's the world here for? God's teaching us what kind of God he is. He's instructing us about who we are because he made us to be what we are. And unless we conform to his will for our lives, we wander in darkness and confusion. We're designed to worship God. He made us to worship Him. That's what we're created for. And until we learn this, we struggle against the very grain of our beings. So the Christian calendar teaches us that God is God. And God is good. And God loved the world. And God loved us. And this is the gospel. And this is the promise of salvation to a world lost in sin. God tells his story to us in the words of the good Dr. Luke, the evangelist, here in Acts chapter 11. 
And he starts with an accusation against Peter. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's the accusation. You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you? The accusation is true. That's, Peter had done that. We've, the last two weeks, that's, that's all we've been learning about. This, this, this sequence of events in which Peter went to Cornelius and he preached the gospel and then he stayed with him for a few days. But now he's being accused for doing exactly what he did. And Peter knew that this accusation was coming. And we're going to see this in a bit in his defense. Peter himself needed a divine vision and the spurring on of the Holy Spirit to cause all of this to come to pass. It would never have happened on his own. That was not Peter's bent. It was not the way Peter worked. Peter was a Jew. He thought like a Jew. He looked like a Jew. He acted like a Jew. He was a Jew. And Jews don't eat with Gentiles. They don't go in and eat with Gentiles. But Peter did. In order for Peter to get there, he had to be pushed and pulled and dragged. He had to, there was no way out of it for him. God was doing this. And when we worked through chapter 10, we heard from his own lips when he spoke to Cornelius that he said to Cornelius, you know that it is unlawful for a Jew to, 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 to fellowship with Gentiles. But God has shown me not to call anything unclean that God has cleansed. Not to call anything common that God has made holy. So we don't have the actual timeline of events uh, from, you know, in the grander scheme of things. Um, we, we do know that Peter was in Joppa and that he had been traveling through Judea after the gospel had gone out, after the, after the stoning of Stephen. We know that the, the story relates to us, uh, Saul's conversion before this in his first trip to Jerusalem. And we know that, that Peter's been wandering through Judea and preaching in all the small towns, and he ended up in Joppa, and he was staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. And that's where he was when uh, he was called up to Caesarea, which again is on the central coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, northern central. And, and we do know that he would have had to travel back to Jerusalem before this accusation takes place. So some time had elapsed from when he had converted Cornelius and his household. And uh, it wouldn't, that trip in itself wouldn't necessarily have taken a very long time, but it doesn't seem like Peter was, you know, you know, popping, you know, on, on a mission to get back to Jerusalem. He, he was ministering along the way, so he was... He was traveling. Now, in the, the context in which the, the larger story here is happening is, is within a 10-year window. It was, it was as few as three years after the crucifixion, which was about when Paul made his first trip to Jerusalem. Uh, that was three years after the crucifixion. Uh, to as many as 13 years after the crucifixion. 
So we're probably looking more like in the 10 to 12 years after Jesus had come and been raised again, the gospel had gone out into Judea and in Samaria, and to, and to the Jews throughout the, the, the dispersion of the Jews, the Jews in Antioch and, and Cilicia and down in, in Alexandria. But it was always going to the Jews. So, um, so for at least three years, probably ten or more, the gospel had stayed predominantly among the Jewish nation. And by now there was even a faction within the church recognizable as those of the circumcision. That's, that's what the text calls them, those of the circumcision. They're, they're a group, a subgroup within the established church, the Jewish church. And they were highly respected and they were regarded uh, among the church. Enough so that they were willing to publicly challenge the Apostle Peter and his actions. And, and these, this faction, the, the, those of the circumcision, felt very strongly that Christianity was a Jewish, a Jewish thing. In fact, they, they felt that you needed to be circumcised in order to be baptized. And that's, that's what this is all about. And it's an understandable misconception. The church was Jewish. That's that all the believers they knew were Jews. And so they, uh, they expected you to be circumcised. And, and now they publicly challenged Peter's actions. You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is a serious offense for the Jews. This is, this is a big deal. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was the sign of the covenant. God told Abraham to circumcise his children. God had Moses circumcise his children. And God had Moses circumcise the Israelites when they left Egypt. This is what meant that you were bound to God and his people. Circumcision. And Jews don't mix with Gentiles. You don't eat with them. You don't, you don't fellowship with them. We are called to be separate, to be set apart, to be holy, the holy people, the chosen race. You don't eat with Gentiles. And just because all these Jews now understood that Jesus was the Messiah that their religion had promised, and they believed in him, and they, had, they took on his baptism, further sign of the covenant, but spread farther. It went also to the women and the children. So, so... So the so the the um, the church now were double covenanted. The, the the Jewish church was double covenanted. All the men were circumcised and baptized, and the church had a strong national flavor, and it understandably looked that way. If people, in fact, the church for many years after the the resurrection and after the, the gospel went out was known, even after Paul started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the church was known as a sect of the Jews. It was a break-off of the Jewish religion. That's the way it was regarded from the secular viewpoint. And the nation of Israel was set apart from the Gentiles. Their messianic hopes were tied up with their national goals. But the whole point of this story, the whole point of this story and this narrative is to change that. Their Messiah was bigger than they thought. Bigger than they realized. He saved them. 
He sent His Holy Spirit on them. They spoke with tongues. They had revelation. They were able to heal the sick. They were able to comfort the brokenhearted. They were able to bring relief to an oppressed people who were burdened by their sins. But their nation was too small to contain their Messiah. And if they really knew their scriptures, and there's been hints all the way through Acts uh, where Jesus says, you're going to bring this to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Or in the Great Commission, Jesus says, uh, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's been hints. There's, there's hints all through the, the, the prophets and Isaiah where the, 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 the Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. But the Jews didn't realize this. This was not part of their national frame of reference. And now we have Peter's defense, verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. This is glorious. Peter's defense is Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. He loved them. He said, okay, I can explain this to you. Calm down. Slow down. I can explain this to you. There's a story. And pay close attention because Peter's defense is nothing but story. He says, this happened and then this happened and this happened. And let me explain it to you in order from the beginning. Let's, let's go back to where all... I was exactly where you are and I thought exactly the same way that you think, but now I don't. As my actions prove... But I can explain this. I didn't just willy-nilly change my mind and start to decide to flip the whole church on its head. That's not what it was. Peter's defense amounts to one thing. It's a story. And I realize that this text is largely a repeat of the last two sermons text. But since the Holy Spirit saw fit to include it twice back to back, and since the message is so vital and central to the message of the book of Acts, I'm happy to read it again for you. And I'll try not to repeat myself too much. <clears throat> Peter's story starts with a divine interruption. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intensely and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth. Wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. So Peter's shown, first, God intervened. And second, his empathy with his accusers. He understood where those of the circumcision were coming from. It didn't surprise him that they were accusing him. In essence, he's told them that their position was formerly his position. He had stood in their shoes. And moreover, he disobeyed the Lord three times in this vision. 
And the rest of the story goes on to show that he will not disobey a fourth time. The story continues, verses 11 to 14. And at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So, six brethren accompany me. Here we see the Holy Spirit continue his continued direction. The Spirit came and said, Go with these men. We see God's divine interruption in Peter's plan. He's, he gives Peter this vision, and at that very moment, three men are at his door. And the Spirit says, Go with them. Just go with them. You don't understand what I'm showing you in this vision. I will show it to you in real life. This, you don't need a vision. You need to see what I'm doing here. So the Holy Spirit's continued direction and verification of Peter's story. There are no less than six eyewitnesses, Jews, who had the same foibles as Peter formerly had and his accusers currently have. He's got proof of these events. Six men. The, the Old Testament required that you have two witnesses for your, for, your, for your accusation to stick. Peter, I've got six, I've got three times two witnesses to verify this story and how this happened. They were with me in Joppa. They came with me from Joppa to Caesarea. They were there. They saw it. Eyewitnesses. Next, the story has the divine revelation given to Cornelius, which is where he says, when he gets to, 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 to Cornelius, Cornelius, he says, why am I here? And, we, and we, we talked about this already. Cornelius says, well, this is what happened. Here's my story. And then now Peter's relating Cornelius' story. An angel of God showed up at a Gentile's house while he was praying and fasting and told him to send for Peter... Simon Peter, who lived in the house of the tanner by the sea in Caesarea. And he was a good man. That guy had a vision, and when I showed up, that's what he told me. He said, an angel came to me and said that I needed to send for you, and you would have a message for me and my people, me and my household. And he filled his house full of, full of his household. And so Peter tells the Jews that the angel had revealed to this man that the message would save him and his household. And finally, Peter's defense ends with the, with the work of God. The story lands on something that God did. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. We, we, we hashed through this as we, we worked through it last, last time I preached, two weeks ago. But uh, 
the Holy Spirit fell on them. He said, I, you know, I just had laid out the outline of what I was going to start to tell them. I mean, these are Gentiles, right? I'm going to have to explain all of this to them about the covenant and about the Jews and about the promises of the scriptures. And But all he did was lay out his outline, and the Holy Spirit fell on him. They started speaking in tongues. They started glorifying God. It was evident outwardly that the Holy Spirit was on them and in them, and their hearts were changed. And so Peter's defense to the Jews is, God entered them. They're the same thing, the only thing that we can claim against the rest of the Jews happened to them. How can I stand against this? So that's a powerful story. And, and then Peter is one better than that. He doesn't just give the Jews the story. He gives them the interpretation. He says, okay, I know that's a lot to swallow. But this is what happened, verses 16 and 17. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Peter confesses that he finally learned his lesson. Peter's reading the story now. Peter's getting it. Who was I that I could withstand God? So Peter obeyed the vision. He obeyed the vision. The vision said, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Then the spirit said, rise, Peter, go with them. And when Peter went, he preached the gospel. He slew their old man. He slew their sin. He baptized them. He slew them. And then he ate with them. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. He says, I perceive that I should not call common what God has cleansed. And when the Holy Spirit landed on these Gentiles, he had ample proof that God had cleansed the Gentiles. Baptism does not supersede the Holy Spirit. The sign is not greater than the thing signified. Peter's story and his interpretation of God's work and his logic is impeccable. There's no argument against it. And here's the consequence, verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So the consequence is threefold. We have silence... Glory to God and conclusion. Silence. This is something we all need to learn. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This news was silence worthy. Be still and know that I am God. There are times when the news takes a moment to settle in. We need to process. We need to reconsider. 
We must quiet our spirits in order to do this. We get so worked up, so frenzied, and so tied up in knots that we can't even just see the simple truth laid out in front of us. Our job is to open our eyes, be quiet, and open your eyes, and see, and know, and learn. Humble yourself, shut your mouth, and listen. Be still. This was one of those times. And the result of their silence is they glorified God. Peter's story meant that they had to change their worldview. Circumcision was no longer a prerequisite for inclusion in the body of Christ. The church was now a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. And they didn't know how this was going to work. This was outside of their frame of reference. How are we going to live in a church where both Gentiles and Jews eat at the same table? How is that going to work? They don't know. They, that's not their problem. They don't have to know. That's not the issue. What, what they have to do now is they have to recognize that God is doing work here and they'll have to figure out what this means. But God is working and it is glorious. And this was evident in their conclusion. Their conclusion was that God had granted Gentile salvation. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now the first and the obvious application here is that we should not be prejudiced against people. There's no room for prejudice in Christ. God's work and his ways are beyond us. We don't know who he's planning on saving. We can't look into people's hearts. We can't predict which people are going to soften and turn to Christ and which people are going to harden and turn away from him. Our job is not to worry about that. We're to look to him and concern ourselves with ourselves and our own holiness. We should look to him and not our own expectations of what he should do. He doesn't do what we want. He does what he wants because he's God and he's Lord over heaven and earth. And the history of Christianity has proven this time and again. The soil found among outcasts is of society is frequently fertile soil for the gospel. God loves to save the downcast, the downtrodden, the people who are down on their luck, the people who know that they can't save themselves because they need somebody to save them. The persecuted church in the first two centuries grew exponentially till the entire empire became Christian. And then when Rome, Christian Rome, an empire, was starting to be sacked by barbarians, those wicked and evil pagan barbarians were sacking Rome. Oh no, Christians, what are we going to do? Those, Christ, those barbarians became the Christian royalty of Western civilization. They became the bastion of Christianity in the Western world. And then when the Roman church, the Catholic church, became apostate, renegade monks and scholars challenged their, its idolatry. Just a few men 
weak and impotent. But not weak or impotent with the Holy Spirit became the great fathers of the Reformation. And all of this happened because of the truth we learned from our text. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And this is a great leveler. Any man, woman, or child who has the Holy Spirit has access to the same God, the same grace, and the same salvation that the greatest saint who ever lived has to rely on. And God blesses those who are His. Those who faithfully, by grace, embrace Jesus Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a great warning to us not to build on faulty foundations. Salvation isn't about a certain lineage or a certain kind of lifestyle or a collection of convictions. Those things won't save you. Being a white middle class American won't save you. Homeschooling won't save you. Attending church every Sunday won't save you. Medical preferences, dietary restrictions, and having lots of kids won't save you. Only Jesus Christ saves you. And he saves others too. And all of us are united eternally in him. And if we are brothers in Christ, then we must not unfaithfully break fellowship. We must practice our unity in community. We must open our arms to every human being who professes Jesus as Lord. Moreover, we must seek every opportunity he gives us and walk through every door he opens to us to share this gospel. Jesus died for sinners, and that means everybody. Everybody needs him, and the gospel's for everybody. We should not be like those who contended with Peter, because love gives the benefit of the doubt. But 1 Corinthians 13, we read, Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. The Christian brothers in Jerusalem should not have attacked Peter for, for doing what he did. They didn't understand what he did. They should have asked him, why did you do that? But they shouldn't have accused him. And continuing in 1 Corinthians 13, love rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And love never fails. This means that if you see something questionable going on in a brother or a sister's life, you should not assume that they are in sin. And you should not assume that their motivations are evil. You should not assume that this is how it usually works. You see somebody doing something and you don't understand it and you think, well, if I was doing that, that's why I would be doing it. And that's bad. That's just, that's just bad. Shame on them. But that's an assumption that you understand why they're doing it. Because you assume that they would be doing it because for the reasons that you would be doing it. No, instead you should hope that they have good justifications for their actions. You should believe that they are walking in faith. Instead of contending with Peter, his opponents should have inquired for his reasons. And as it turns out, Peter's justifications were ample. 
He wasn't sullying the name of the church or Christ. He was propagating it. He was planting the seed of the gospel just like Jesus told him to. He wasn't violating the law. He was practicing it. He was loving God and who he now realized was his neighbor. That before he had rejected as his neighbor. But Jesus had shown him was his neighbor. Because God's love is greater than you think. So we should not be like those who contended with Peter. On the other hand, we should be like those who contended with Peter. Because they didn't let it fester. They didn't bury it. They called Peter on it. And they gave him opportunity to respond. And what's more, once they heard Peter's story, they accepted it with grace and they glorified God. They didn't lift their agenda above the revelation of God. And they recognized the truth of God's work among the Gentiles. Something that they were going to have to work through and work hard on. That this did, it, it was, okay, this is a mind bender, but God's bigger. Okay, I can take that. But they glorified God. And this is evidence that the same spirit who lived in Peter and Cornelius and in his household lived in the believers who originally contended with Peter. And one final note. The gospel is story. And that is the source of its power. Well, God is the source of the gospel's power. But the gospel is God's story. God uses story to prove his work. And you can't argue against the story. And you especially can't argue against God's story because God is ultimate truth and reality, and God's story is true. You can't argue against the truth. So you cannot like it, or you can ignore it, or you can disbelieve it, but you can't argue it. And the gospel story is history. It's what happened. God did this. Either you accept that, or you don't. But if you do, then you share it. And you share it because it's a good story. And even better than that, it's good news. It changes things. This is the best news that man has ever been given. Peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Jesus died for sinners. That's me and you. And I am now at peace with God, and you can be too. The gospel will change your life for the better. Forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. story is a story of death and 
and resurrection. As the season of Trinity draws to a close, a time when we rejoice about and proclaim the accomplished work of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we look forward to it again next year. And as Advent begins, we long for our Lord and Savior. We are reminded of our imminent need for deliverance and that God is the only source of salvation. Praise be to Him that we can already know His peace while yet desiring its completion. This food is a promise of His presence and strength to bring us all through till He calls each of us to Himself at the final judgment. This table is for all baptized believers, members of Christ and His body, the church. And when you eat the bread and drink the wine with us, you confess that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign grace and mercy of God. And that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.